poor Husk. She's had a rough time, hasn't she, Jay? She really has, Miles. I mean, she spent so long living in Sam's shadow trying to be an X-Man. Also, she hooked up with Archangel. In the sky. Directly above her mom. Those were dark times. Possibly not actually her darkest times, though, surprisingly. Wait, it got worse than that? She did go evil for a while. Paige Guthrie went evil? I find that difficult to believe. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, it started simply enough, you know, she lost her temper more often, yelled at students, but then she lost control of both her mutation and her mind. Aw, poor kid. What did she do? Well, she defected to the Hellfire Academy and... Fought the X-Men? Became an evil lunch lady. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 255 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. But first, since we're talking about X-Force, today is actually a really, really important X-Force-related anniversary. It is? It is. It is specifically the 10th anniversary of X-Factor number 45, Richter and Shatterstar's first on-panel kiss. Oh, that's awesome! Yay! I love them as a couple, and I love that scene, and that's wonderful. Happy anniversary to that kiss. And happy several weeks post-anniversary to that kiss by the time this episode goes up. But for now, yeah, that happened. Mm-hmm. So you can celebrate retroactively when you hear this episode. We'll do so too, so we can celebrate together across the country from each other, or maybe in the same city. We have listeners all over. While you're celebrating, there's something else to celebrate this week coming out concurrent to this episode. Yes, indeed. Um, I was on a podcast called Unpacking the Power of the Power Pack, which I, I love that name, um, talking about the Mutant Massacre tie-in issue of the Power Pack. You know, one of the many reasons the Power Pack uh, ended up probably needing a lot of therapy. And uh, it was really fun. And uh, you should listen to it because it comes out today. So you can download it like right now. We've also been on a lot of other uh, shows and had lots of other guest spots. We always try to link to those on social media. Um, yeah, we should try to talk about those on the show more these days in the future. I think we've been pretty good about that. Well, we could always be better. We could be perfect. Could we, though? Meh, approaching. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a, that's a road I'm entirely comfortable going down, but if we can settle for a lot of fun, we can at least hit X-Force level. Indeed. And speaking of, hey, it's an X-Force episode. Well, it's half an X-Force episode and half a New Warriors episode, because Fabian Nestez's two books about punchy teenagers are crossing over in the story that we're covering right now. I always feel a little bit weird about crossovers when it's the same writer on both books or when it's a crossover between, you know, two books by the same writer. In this case, though, I have to say, it works. I mean, the writing is very, very smooth from one chapter to another. Continuity works, characters are speaking very much in their own voices. And the two books remain very tonally different. Yeah, it's actually quite effective, even if not a whole lot happens. But a whole lot has happened in the past, and maybe we should talk about that before we get started. Right, so, X-Force, the forciest X-team, used to be Professor X's youngest students, the New Mutants. A few of those New Mutants are still on X-Force. 
Cannonball, Sam Guthrie, who's nigh invulnerable when blasting. Richter, Julio Richter, with earthquake powers and outstanding fashion. Boom Boom, or Boomer, Tabitha Smith, who creates both time bombs and sarcasm. I know she's going by Boomer, I'm just gonna call her Boom Boom forever. She does eventually go back to Boom Boom as a name, so I feel more justified in that than I would otherwise. Also, it's just a really great codename. Um, we forgot to mention fashion among, among her skills. I believe that she is the one who designed this generation of X-Force's uniforms. She did, and she seems to like zippers as much as Tetsuya Nomura. Plus, the team has some non-New Mutants on it, starting with Cable, the team's grizzled cyborg leader and big fan of big guns. Cable has recently been confirmed to be Nathan Christopher Summers. But with Cable as his co-leader, or possibly second-in-command, or possibly commander, it varies, but definitely bath-time buddy, is Domino Nina Thurman, the team's lucky sharpshooter and designated wine mom. We also have Teresa Rourke, Siren, Banshee's daughter, who inherited Banshee's sonic scream and stripey underarm cape thing. That's how you fly with the sonic scream. Yeah, the stripes are important too, I assume. Finally, we've got Shatterstar, a very pointy, extra-dimensional television star straight from the Mojoverse. Now, X-Force's last member, the super-strong James Proudstar, Warpath, used to be on the New Mutants' rival team, Emma Frost's Hellions. Most of the other Hellions were killed a few years back by Fitzroy, but a few have survived. Like, for example, Angelica Jones, Firestar. But she's not on X-Force, she's on the New Warriors. These are a non-mutant-focused team, which contains a number of mutants, but um, anyway, they're 20-something do-gooders, and they are also notably written by Fabian Nicesa. Now, there is another group of young people running around causing trouble in these comics. That is the Upstarts, a quartet of rich and murderous young people who are competing in a mutant-hunting murder game run by the Omnipath Games Master. These guys are displaced time-traveling murderer Trevor Fitzroy... Nihilistic Energy Something Something Er, Sienna Blaze. Great Big Jerk, Graydon Creed. And Shinobi Shaw, who, as we all know, is the best at sex. Um, and they're basically all really awful, even if we do kind of a little bit love Shinobi. We do. So let's dive right into X Force number 32 with a roll of the dice. This is written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by John Holdridge, and colored by Marie Javins. I gotta admit, one of the things that this crossover has done, and one of one of the dangers of crossovers, is that as soon as I read through the whole thing, I was imagining the X-Force bo books as they would have been drawn by Derek Robertson. Right, because Derek Robertson was doing New Warriors all over this era, and while he wasn't quite the artist he would later turn into with, say, Transmetropolitan or his later works, he's still really good. He's great, and he's so expressive, and he's such a strong, such solid draftsman, and I just really love his cable. Yeah, yeah, I actually like his cannonball as well. I like his firestar. I like his everybody. I do, but his cable specifically has really good grumpy faces. Which cable always should. Now, we mentioned this was an X-Force New Warriors crossover. These teams have met before, not just in Fabian Nessiez's imagination, where he keeps all of his characters, I assume— they were in the Kings of Pain annual crossover back in 1991, where, of course, there were lots of misunderstanding-based fights because comics. So, the Upstarts have a new game. And I want to talk a little bit, actually, about the title of this before we jump into that. 
because did you notice this is called child's play and the lettering very specifically mimics Bill Watterson's, doesn't it? It does, yeah, from Calvin and Hobbes. And then, of course, the fact that there's a new Child's Play movie coming out makes me think of that. And so it's just like pop culture references all over the place. Oh, no. See, I'm trying to figure out whether that subconsciously influenced the fact that I've begun thinking of the Game Master's game as Calvin Ball played wrong. It totally is. The rules keep changing. The prizes keep changing. Most of the people involved are jerks. But only one person is making up the rules, and he's dictating them to everyone else, and that's not how you play Calvin Ball. Okay, okay, so... Unless it is. Oh, how deep does this Calvin Ball hole go? But, yeah, speaking of games, the Upstarts have a new one. It's sort of part of their bigger game, and it's kind of a mini-game or possibly a quick-time event, and it is called Young Hunt, named, I assume, after the worst Nickelodeon game show ever. Oh, see, now I'm just uh, taking the whole childish handwriting thing, and I'm thinking of Sabretooth Death Hunt, and maybe there's like a Muppet Babies equivalent called Sabretooth Young Hunt. It's Sabretooth Babies. They'll make your dreams come true, and sometimes they'll have like clips from various movies in there at the same time, and all the adults, you'll only see their legs, and they'll just talk in voices you can't understand. Miles, you're literally talking about the X-Babies, which are things that exist in the Mojoverse. Okay, fine. It would just be funnier with Sabretooth because of, you know, all the murder. Is there a Sabretooth X-Baby? It seems like there probably is. I don't know. I don't remember ever seeing one. I mean, I think there are Age of Apocalypse X-Babies, which means that there's probably a Sabretooth one if they're specifically the X-Men of the Age of Apocalypse. But we digress very early on, as is our way. Anyway, so Young Hunt, um, and and the the goal of Young Hunt is for the upstarts to bring in all of the former New Mutants and Hellions, but to bring them to the Game Master alive. And just this once, the Game Master is letting Fenris play too. Right, because you may recall that Fenris was petitioning to join the upstarts way back in the Omega Red story from early X-Men Volume 2. And apparently they're back. I don't know why they want to join this group, but apparently they do. I love that the Von Strucker twins suck so much that they're not allowed to join the team of the worst people. Right, but of course they don't know how much they suck because they are so sure that they are the coolest kids on the block. And I gotta say, based on what they're wearing in the scene when they show up, I kind of buy that. Like, Andreas is in this loose blue number with orange highlights and this golden chest harness and, like, way too much hair. And Andrea is in this tight white body stocking with matching hot pink shades, gun holster, and her very own chest harness. They're like the most evil, douchey laser tag players ever. I will stand by my last statement relevant to the Hellfire Club and just say, eat the rich. Uh, Pretty much that, yeah. Although I gotta say, seeing the Von Struckers in the comics where they suck a whole lot makes me miss the Gifted, where they, I guess they still kind of sucked sometimes, but I liked them anyway. They, these, these Von Struckers weren't in the Gifted. They were, they were just, they were just in hazy memories and possibly some subconscious suggestions from a music box that played the Errol King. Right, I mean, the, the modern Struckers, you know, the main character ones. Anyway. Ah, yes, well, well, you... You, you will be pleased to know that this comic does feature some hand-holding. It does. So why are Andreas and Andrea holding hands in this scene? As a stand-in for incest? I mean, you know, in terms of the plot, though. Okay, they are, they are hunting Magma, 
who is is in the middle of a rainforest, trying to come to terms with the fact that she believes herself to be someone named Allison Crestmere right now because New Warriors number 31 revealed what will later be retconned again, but is now the case, which is that Nova Roma is actually a massive red herring and it's a bunch of people who got kidnapped and dropped in the woods and made to believe that they were from ancient Rome. And you can listen to me and Austin Gorton of The Real Gentleman of Leisure talk exhaustively about that in episode 225 of this very show. Anyway, that's mostly irrelevant because what Magma mostly does in this story is get captured, which happens almost immediately. And she looks awesome. I love seeing Magma powered up, like with that sort of yellow solid body with the red swirly bits over it. I don't know. It's always looked cool. It still looks cool. It's really cool, but I get a real bad case of no one does it like Sinkevich every time I see it. You did hear, of course, that Chris Claremont and Bill Sinkevich Mm -hmm. are doing a New Mutants one-shot soon. I did. I did hear that. And I'm, I'm trying not to get super excited for it because I feel like it's going to be one of those things that will either be exactly what I want it to be or fundamentally deeply disappointing, and I'd like to just enjoy it no matter what. That seems reasonable. Either way, this magma drawn by Tony Daniel is, is in big trouble. She gets, she gets carted off by Fenris, um, who are able to, to capture her, but they are not able to get their other quarry, who is Empath. He manages to get almost to the camp where the best of of Novaroma is, and while Fenris nearly wipes out the camp, they are stopped by none other than the mysterious, uh, the, the mysterious quasi-villain Moonstar, whose true identity we could not even begin to guess. It's Danny Moonstar. It's totally Danny Moonstar in a perhaps somewhat questionable costume. It's like it's like if there was a d- version of Spider-Man's mask that she wore over her face but not her hair, and a bathing suit that was a one-piece if you took out about two-thirds of the fabric a one-piece would normally have. About half the time, she's colored as wearing a jumpsuit under that. Um, but... I don't think she's supposed to be, which is kind of unfortunate for a lot of reasons, most of which have to do with physics and some of which have to do with gratuitous objectification of a character who is really not into being gratuitously objectified. Ah, the 90s. Anyway, so elsewhere in the world, Sienna Blaze has captured Cannonball and Boomer from the ancestral Guthrie home. The abduction was witnessed by Paige Guthrie, who I believe makes her first appearance, or at least her first named appearance in this issue. This is, of course, Husk, who's going to go on to lead Generation X and be a member of the X-Men for years to come. We also don't meet, but see again, Josh Guthrie, who will later go by Jay Guthrie and Icarus. He's going to be a member of an X-Men team way, way, way later, and very bad things will happen. And he's also going to be in like a Romeo and Juliet stand-in, written by Chuck Austin later. It's a whole thing. He died. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's X-Men, so whatever. All right, one thing we have to talk about here, though— I like Tony Daniels' art overall. I will agree that Derek Robertson makes most people who aren't Derek Robertson look bad. What I don't like that Tony Daniel does is Boomer's bathing suit, and for that matter, Moonstar's bathing suit. Like, I don't want to get too explicit in my description, but I'm just saying, like, the way anatomy tends to work on people, having a crotch part of your bathing suit that is basically a string of dental floss cannot be comfortable. I really have nothing to add to that, sorry. 
No, that's that's reasonable. I mean, I feel like we shouldn't talk too much more about it. Like, I know we have a don't talk about certain characters crotch rule, and maybe we should add another one on here, at least when it comes to this bathing think, suit. Well, I mean, I think I think that this this is this is a a direction of speculation that veers into directions we actually really shouldn't and don't want to go. But I will say that unstable molecules probably make a number of improbable and otherwise horribly uncomfortable garments more feasible. Yeah, yeah, let's go with unstable molecules. That makes me less uncomfortable looking at these pages. At this point, that is how I explain away literally any improbable fashion worn by someone who has at some point been a superhero. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Now, speaking of people who have been or will be later superheroes, Paige's powers have just manifested, although... We're still a little shaky on what they are because we find out in this story that she has she has managed to shapeshift into a sparrow. Um, that's not something that she's going to be able to do later, even I think as, as soon as her next appearance. Right, because normally and canonically, she just peels off all of her skin, which is awesomely gross, and then has like different kinds of skin underneath. And she's still always humanoid as far as I know. Yeah, she doesn't actually change shape, she just changes substance. Yeah, I I really love how weird and gross her powers are, and that she also just presumably leaves shed skin everywhere. Oh, like Spider-Man and Web Fluid, but grosser. Well, Web Fluid automatically self-disperses, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. Maybe Husk's carapaces do? No, I I vaguely remember this having come up, although I may be misremembering and it might just be because might just have been from like a weird speculative train of thought because this is the kind of thing I worry about. Now, there's not much time to go into the details of how Paige's powers do and don't work because Fitzroy shows up um, wearing very, very silly armor to fight the rest of the new mutants. Fitzroy's armor is ridiculous. It is. I mean, okay, so X-Force is here. They're looking for Cannonball and Boom Boom. They're talking to Ma Guthrie. And they've seen some ridiculous toyetic armor before, but I think Fitzroy is going for, like, the county fair gold medal here because it it's just... You can even see where the, the um, glass part on top would hinge open to put the Fitzroy action figure down into it. You could see how the claws on it could sort of hold weapons that you get from a different action figure, but they'd probably fall off if he was at the wrong angle. So was this actually available as a toy? I mean, I don't think so. But it should have been. Would, would you have bought it? Would you have bought Fitzroy with power armor? I had some really questionable tastes when I was a kid, so probably. What I love is that somehow you, you found, like, a proto version of Paper Jam Cyclops to send me. Yes. Yes, I did. And I'm still very proud of that. That's my best action figure find possibly ever. It's not even a mod. Like, they just made a line of really weird part monster X-Men. They did, and Cyclops looks so horrified. I love his facial sculpt. He's like, oh god, how did I get in this action figure line? This is terrible. This is probably better for Paper Jam Dipper. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Vance Astrovic, a.k.a. Justice, and Dwayne Taylor, a.k.a. Night Thrasher, have infiltrated the Hellfire Club. Did Vance Astrovic ever just go by Vance Astro? Because that is such a good Paul Pierrot name. Oh, he did. Because he, later on, in an alternate future, becomes Major Victory, and then he goes back in time to meet his younger self to tell him not to go on the mission that turned him into Major Victory, and then that sends him in a different direction that turns him into Marvel Boy. Wow, I love that a name as generic as Marvel Boy 
is through multiple directions and characters now inextricably linked to time travel fuckery. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, so as as Major Victory, which I would like to also add is a terrible code name. He was going by Vance Astro. Yes, he was. Okay, good for him. Now, these two have infiltrated the Hellfire Club, and we also get a cameo of Archangel and Psylocke, who are here because it happens to be taking place at the same time as X-Men 29. It's really cool. They even get Psylocke's rad dress exactly the same. That makes me happy. Now, Shinobi Shaw, um, when when not uh, getting in a big fight with Archangel and Psylocke tries to convince Justice to go pick Firestar up for him. They have been involved romantically, and Shinobi argues that, well, at least that way she won't get hurt. The upstarts will get her one way or another, and maybe Justice can make it a little easier. And that takes us all the way over to The New Warriors with number 45, Sleeping with the Enemy. Written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Derek Robertson and Brandon McKinney, inked by Larry Malstead, Mark McKenna, and Mark Stegbauer, and colored by Ovi Handru. And as I mentioned, um, while wistfully imagining a world where he'd been drawing X-Force, Derek Robertson is just great on this. I guess Robertson and McKinney in combination. Um are are just and 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 the inked, and the inking team. There are there are there's a lot of, of of sources for the art on this, and they're working together beautifully. Indeed. And where they take us first is Games Master's Mindscape, which is like the astral plane, but just in his head, where he awakens the mindscapey forms of Cannonball, Boom Boom, and Magma, and holds them out in his enormous astral form's hand very dramatically. To which they respond with absolutely no gravitas, as Cannonball demands, Who are you? What's going on here? And Boom Boom adds, And what's with this angle you're giving us so we gotta stare right up your nostrils? So I know we don't do superlatives at the end of our show the way a lot of comic book podcasts do, but I feel like there's an argument to be made for coming up with Boom Boom's best insult at the end of every X-Force episode, because she's got some good ones. We could, or we could just save them all for the, the Corbos. Ah, yes indeed, a fine plan. We'll save that till December. Games Master explains the story so far for any New Warriors readers who didn't also read X-Force, and as he does, we get this rad psychic image of the surviving New Mutants and Hellions, but with their 80s looks, and I really like those 80s looks. I even like the Hellions' strange, asymmetrical fuchsia costumes. Um, obviously, yes. Unfortunately, Rusty and Skids, who were totally New Mutants, are also totally forgotten. As usual. Look, if they wanted to be in the montage, they shouldn't have gone and joined the, uh, whatchamacallits, Acolytes. Yeah, legit. At the New Warriors headquarters in Manhattan, Night Thrasher comes clean to the rest of his team. And before we talk about what he comes clean about, let's do a robot roll call! Cambot! No, no, I, I wish we could talk about mystery science, but this is good too. Wait, are any of the New Warriors robots? Uh, no. I feel very, very let on right now. Mm, legit. But anyway, Night Thrasher is Dwayne Taylor. He's this rich gadget master, and he's the leader of the team. He's also a black teenager superhero in the 90s, so he's got a skateboard. And is in fact the subject of, or the, the context for the famous pitch from Dwayne McDuffie, um, commenting on that particular trend. Nova is Rich Ryder. He's a space guy with a cool helmet. Is he also rich, and does he ride? Um, I don't think so, in either count. Silhouette is Sil Cord, who can travel through the shadows and fights with her arm braces. 
We also have Chimera, who used to be Nemorita and is now blue. She was not blue before, I guess. I am not wildly familiar with this character, and I kind of regret that because she seems like she's probably related to Namor, who's and it is therefore extra awesome. She also has a Little, little Mermaid shell bra, which seems impractical, and asymmetrical everything else. Including the shell bra. Just one shell. I, it's a whole bra, it's just that only half of it is a shell. Yes, exactly that. We also have Speedball, Robbie Baldwin, who bounces everywhere, along with his cat, like a gummy bear. I know he's supposed to be covered with, like, little balls of con- concussive energy, but it really, really makes him look like he's the same texture as the thing. A little bit, yeah. It's kind of strange. Part of that is definitely the, a byproduct of the fact that he's, his, his energy is, is colored orange, and I think also the fact that he's wearing a blue costume over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar color scheme. Then we have a newer character, Rage, Alvin Holiday, a big guy with a mask who I don't know anything about except that his name makes me think of a bunch of elves drinking flower wine and singing, and for a gigantic masked scary dude, that's a great juxtaposition. The next member of the New Warriors is one with whom you are familiar by now, and we definitely are, and that is Firestar Angelica Jones, a former Hellion with microwave powers. She first premiered in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and then got her own origin miniseries in the comics, where Emma Frost set her pony on fire. Pour one out for butter rum. Lastly, we have Justice, Vance Astrovic, who we mentioned before, formerly Marvel Boy, later on in a different timeline, Major Victory. So apparently, last issue, from what the New Warriors could tell, he quit the team. In reality, he was secretly working with Night Thrasher to go undercover with the Hellions to figure out why Graydon Creed did some bad stuff to him in a story that's not really relevant. And this is where Night Thrasher's like, hey team, here's the deal. And the team's mostly understanding, but Firestar, Justice's girlfriend, is kind of annoyed. She kind of wishes she'd been kept in on the loop on this. And they get over it pretty quickly, but still kind of a dick move. Why Why did they not tell the rest of the team? It's not like the rest of the team couldn't have known. I don't know. I haven't read the previous issue, so hard to say. Alright. One character who's not pleased by all this for his own reasons, though, is Speedball. Because the New Warriors have been through a lot of changes lately, and He hasn't. Everyone on this stupid team has a new outfit, a new body, or a new attitude, but me. And he gets so upset that his powers go out of control for a second and transform his costume into a new version of that same costume. Which, honestly, makes kind of more sense than that time Spider-Man got his black costume from an alien tailor machine in Secret Wars. I mean, I guess no sense is twice the sense as no sense. Well, there you go. Now, there's no time to process Justice being undercover with the Hellions, or Speedball's new costume, or the young hunt that Justice has managed to find out about from Shinobi Shaw, because... For some reason, and I didn't have this problem in the comics, so I think it's got to be that it's it's in mixed case, in, in our lower case in this, I keep on reading young hunt as yogurt and getting briefly really confused. Oh, no, well, fair enough, but... Because a bunch of guys who look like Master Chief from Halo in their big boxy armor show up to fight the team. If you remember hearing about big boxy armored Halo looking guys in an X-book before, you're correct. Because Graydon Creed was Tribune in Sabretooth Gone Hunting, and this is his tribunal. And you know what that means? What's that? They're all bankers. They probably are all battle bankers. They got their ass kicked last time, and so now they got armor of their own. Some of them had armor before, or did they? I guess they didn't. No, no, Hmm. that's why they got their ass kicked. Also, Sabretooth. 
anyway, there's a great big fight, and they take take out the the battle bankers like chumps. Specifically, the day is saved by Justice, who caps off the fight with one of the worst taglines. They got what was coming to them. A little bit of justice. Hey, do you think Justice says that after one night stands? Or, like, to Firestar? Uh, oh, I wish I hadn't said any of that. Indubitably. No, what I think, based on this and a later line, is that he actually doesn't really associate his own codename with the word justice. He just uses it and doesn't realize how douchey he sounds when he does. Or maybe it's pronounced differently. Maybe his codename is actually justice or something like that, and so he doesn't really assume they're the same word. It's Eustace. Eustace. Oh, like from Narnia. He was the jerk kid, right? No. That was Edmund. Why did I think Eustace? Was there a kid named Eustace in Narnia? It's been a long time. Not that I recall. Hmm. Well, anyway. Now, Vance isn't going to go fight his team for Firestar the way he told Shinobi Shaw he would. So he just tells them what's going on, and he offers them a plan. He says, hey, there's this guy named Games Master who's behind the whole Yogurt Young hunt, and we need to take him out. But that means we need to infiltrate this whole thing... And that means we need to at least pretend to give these guys what they want. It's Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. I don't know where you got Eustace from. Maybe he was a kid in one of the other Narnia books. There are like seven of those things. Yeah, I I actually have only read the one because I read it very young. And being me, I um, discovered that it was a religious allegory, felt deeply, deeply betrayed and somewhat manipulated, and refused to read the rest of the series. See, I didn't find out it was a religious allegory until like 10 years later, and then I felt betrayed. Oh yeah, totally. It's all about God's persona. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there's this plan, and Firestar's like, wait, so you're saying you're gonna just like give me to bad guys who want to capture me and then kill me? And then, once again, Justice delivers a line that's just utterly terrible given his codename. Your life, my life, all of our lives if necessary, if that's what it takes for justice to be served. What the hell, man? Like, he's saying he's gonna be served? Like, is Shinobi Shaw gonna feed Firestar to him? This is, I I don't like any of this. Maybe, maybe, um, he means, like, served court documents? Oh, maybe. I mean, he did just get out of jail in the comic, so, uh... Anyway, um, Shinobi, for his part, is is lounging around in a bathrobe, and he tells Justice, or has told Justice in the past, his own plan. They will deliver a prisoner, in this case Angelica, to the Game Master, and once they do, they'll take out the Game Master and the other upstarts. And that means that Shinobi Shaw can use the defeated Games Master for the most important task of all, telling him what sex is. I mean, given that Games Master has a constant tap into every mind on the planet, I would assume that he has a fairly good idea. Exactly. That's why Shinobi wants to get that information from him. We also find out that today's upstart prize is that whoever wins the upstart game gets everyone else's powers, which, you know what, whatever. It changes every time. I don't even care anymore. Do they get all of the other upstarts' powers, or do they get all of the powers of the captured, uh, hunted young? I was a little unclear on that. Meh. Honestly, probably not even worth discussing. It'll be changed by the next time we look at it anyway. And nobody wins, so... The only way to win the young hunt is... to have yogurt? 
to serve justice. Justice-flavored yogurt. Justice-flavored yogurt. Anyway, let's go to Madripoor before this metaphor gets any further out of hand, where Moonstar and Empath have fled. They're actually looking for Karma, another surviving new mutant, to warn her about this whole thing. But, of course, Sienna Blaze shows up out of nowhere, like she does. Thankfully, as Sienna appears, that familiar blocky reddish-pinkish circle appears around her head, because Karma takes her mind over! Yay! Karma's here, and she's wearing her old New Mutants uniform, and she's finally in a book other than Wolverine, which means we get to cover it, and I'm really glad to see her. I love... Yeah, decades from now, Chris Claremont is going to beautifully lampshade why Karma keeps her New Mutants costume and why she keeps on popping up in it as when she's only a sporadic superhero. And it's great. However, what's not great is that apparently Sienna Blaze wins anyway, because she, with her unconscious prisoners, pops up in Games Master's Mindscape to close the issue, and to take us to X-Force number 33, rules were made to be broken. Got the same creative team as last time, and we pick up immediately um, in Cumberland, County, Kentucky, uh, where X-Force is busily fighting Fitzroy. And the fight goes on until Thunderbird captures Bantam. And Bantam is very, very easily intimidated into telling Thunderbird all about his own powers and Fitzroy's. Bantam specifically is Fitzroy's chronal anger. He's what allows Fitzroy to open his portals through time. And Cable wants to use Bantam to open Fitzroy's last portal so they can track where he came from. But Bantam points out that that's going to be a problem because in order to open those portals, Fitzroy requires life energy. Cable's got a plan, though. He covers his metal arm with fake skin, and you know what? I think we should just let Cable explain, because this is too nonsense for me to even describe. My arm is made of living matter, but it's not human flesh. It's techno-organic fiber, something which you time travelers from a measly 100 years in the future wouldn't know about. And since you couldn't drain my life force through the T.O. mesh... Your body resorted to draining the next closest energy source available to it. Your own! Okay, but he is, like, that is his body. That's not how, that's not how that works. That's... Apparently it is! Also, how is Fitzroy closer to Cable's arm than Cable? Because it's the plot! Sure, why not? That sounds delightful. Anyway, X-Force dives through the portal, followed discreetly by Paige Guthrie over Ma Guthrie's objections. Paige, um is going to emerge at a slightly different point, or at least she's going to disappear to a slightly different point. She's not going to show up until part four of the story. But X-Force lands in Shinobi Shaw's very large bathtub. Because it's X-Force. Well, and because it's Shinobi Shaw! Because as he comments, this keeps happening. He was attacked in his bathtub in both Uncanny X-Men 282 and X-Men Volume 2, number 23. And so this raises a lot of questions, like... Is he just really unlucky, or does he just spend so much time in the bathtub that if anyone attacks him, of course he's there. Like, his skin would be so wrinkly. Okay, it's a great bathtub. If I had that bathtub, I would hang out in it all the time, too. Also, if we're going with the Shinobi Shaw just wants to understand sex theory, maybe he knows that Cable and Domino probably have sex, and that they take a lot of baths together, and so he figures they must be somehow related. Ah, you know, that could very well be. Maybe he read early issues of X-Force. Anyway, uh, Fitzroy, as it turns out, is is not actually dead, um, which is is a shame. And after a lot of grumbling and a Peanuts reference that makes him easily twice as endearing as he was before, Shinobi 
lets X-Force know where the upstarts are based, um, which is to say space or Switzerland, actually. They're, they're in Switzerland. They're in Switzerland, which means Games Master and his Mindscape is in Switzerland. And, well, Derek Robertson put Cannonball and Boom Boom back in their uniforms. Now they're back in those scary bathing suits. Eh, whatever. Anyway, Games Master's being really weird here. Yeah, he's waxing wistful about how cool teenagers are and how cool superheroes are. And it really feels like this particular storyline is trying to build him into something bigger more compl- and more complicated with more depth. Like, this feels like it's gearing up towards a major, major revelation about him. But we never actually get there. Right, he talks about how he's had all this pain, and the superheroes have had their own pain, but they've actually risen to the occasion, and he hasn't, and, like, doesn't really lead to anything. No, um, and he is interrupted in the middle of his his reverie by Justice, who has shown up with an apparently unconscious Firestar, at which point Games Master uh, goes full Magneto-style drama. I must say... You've played your part, as difficult as it's been, to absolute perfection. What part is that? The part of Judas, young man. Go ahead and betray me, as you planned to betray Shinobi. Alas, Justice can't kill Games Master, because Games Master has all of the captive teens in pods, and if he dies, they die. I guess they're all in their early 20s now. I still think of them as teenagers. Yeah, early 20 kids are basically teenagers anyway. But fortunately, those early 20-something kid teenagers have plans of their own. That's right. Karma was in fact possessing Sienna and used her to infiltrate the headquarters. So Karma gets everyone else out of stasis. Uh, Moonstar refuses to confirm or deny anything about her identity. And then Sienna shows back up. And the twist is that it's not that she's unpossessed, it's that she's now possessed by Games Master. I guess he possesses people now? Dude, Games Master is basically the asshole kid who always had to win make-believe. God, he totally is, you're right. And so, yeah, he's just gonna possess all of his prisoners and make them fight whoever shows up to rescue them. Meanwhile, though, in Manhattan, at GC Investment Bankers, which, as we know, is uh, Graydon Creed's business, it's described here as, quote, a legitimate business front for a very illegitimate man. Oh, snap. Come on, narration. Like, I know Graydon Creed's parents weren't married, but that's not the reason that he's terrible. Everything else is the reason that he's terrible. Right, there are so many things to mock Graydon Creed about. And so the new warriors show up and they shake down Graydon Creed. They blackmail him saying, hey, are your anti-mutant followers going to like it if they know you're working with mutants? And I really appreciate that he's like, good point, name your terms. It's not just about him working with mutants because they've also found out about his parentage. That too, yeah. And this is very much the Graydon Creed we've seen most of the time. You know, the businessman whose ethics are very easily compromised, who isn't super invested in anything but hatred, rather than the detective murdering, frothing at the mouth version from X Men Unlimited number four. Um, now, he lets the New Warriors know what X-Force has already found out from Shinobi Shaw, which is that everyone's up at Shinobi's secret chalet in Switzerland, because just as on our Earth, in, on Earth 616, everyone's got a secret chalet in Switzerland, but especially supervillains. No, oh, we don't have a secret Swiss chalet. I guess that means we're not supervillains, which is a relief. We're not supervillains, and we are not attempting to, you know move a large amount of money whose origins we need to keep secret. Hmm, true. Well, if we ever do, we know where to go. Well, we've ruined it now. Damn it. 
That takes us to New Warriors number 46, Child's Play Part 4. There's actually no other title. This is written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Derek Robertson, inked by Larry Malstead, Danny Bulanati, and Ian Aiken, and colored by Joe Rosas. Now, X-Force arrives at Shinobi Shaw's chalet to discover... Presumably, a red-string serial killer board with Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue pictures, a mirror with a bunch of tentative lipstick kiss prints, and the word nipples written about a dozen times all over the place. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that is definitely what they see. Alas, we do not, because it is too horrible, too bizarre, and too convoluted to be shown on the panel. What we actually see are, are you know, the new warriors, and... Over a dramatic two-page spread, the two teams decide that this time they are going to buck superhero tradition and they're going to team up instead of fighting. That's why this is only a four-part crossover instead of like an eight-part crossover. And I appreciate that as all the leaders are talking strategy, in the background, Richter is just being all smooth, leaning up against a tree uh, and chatting up Namorita. It's just a nice little artistic touch. You tried, buddy. The plan is that they're going to split into three teams and charge in at the three entry points to the chalet. They figure, you know what, Games Master's an omnipath, he probably sees what we're doing anyway, so fuck it, let's just do what we usually do, as Night Thrasher says. Move out, and subtlety's out the window, gang! To which Domino responds, briefly putting down her Pinot Noir. Oh, that's a change of pace. And indeed, Games Master does know exactly what's going on, so he uses all of his mind-controlled prisoners to fight the invading heroes. And that's really the bulk of the issue. We won't go into too much detail. He does go on and on a lot about how young and vital they are and how they haven't been hurt like he has. And they haven't, you know, lost all sorts of things like he has. And he's left alone to drift, aim drift aimlessly without a cause. So I guess that's why he's a big jerk. You know, there are plenty of people who feel that they don't have a cause in life and still don't organize rich assholes to hunt humans for sport. I would even argue most of them. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are obvious exceptions to this rule, but like, come on, dude. At least own, own that you're into this. As a couple members of X-Force are mind-controlled into fighting a couple members of the New Warriors, Nova scoffs. He's like, hey, our team would never be mind-controlled like this. Except when Puppet Master took over Vance's mind, and there was all them Infinity things going on, and the Dark Force Dimension stuff too. Then I got kind of hit by that Nova Force power. That's a lot of mind control in one comic. I feel like Chris Claremont would approve. Anyway, the heroes get a small incremental win as Cable is able to briefly break Sam's mind control using his own telepathy, which he didn't really realize he had. Yeah, so that's a thing. But eventually, every hero is taken down. Games Master wins. Except Paige Guthrie, who came here all the way from a couple issues ago and emerges from the trees in this rad, shadowy dryad form. She's terrified. She knows that her skin-shedding powers are going to be useless. But she also knows that if she does nothing, her brother and all of her friends are going to die. And she calls out to Games Master. So... He yanks her into the mindscape and into a new mutant's uniform because this is how she sees herself. This is how she imagines herself. And he is still planning to kill all his prisoners and divvy up the prizes. So Paige offers him something else. She offers a new game, a new, very, very ambiguous game. 
This part's really confusing. I mean, the terms make sense. If Paige wins, everybody goes free, and if the Games Master wins, he gets her as well as them. And he also gets the whole next generation of mutants alongside her to guide and control. These are good stakes. This is going to be a really important contest. Except, there's no contest. He just says that she wins, and then, then he disappears, and I'm really confused. See, what I think... The game was, the unstated game, or at least his cha- his unspoken challenge, was for her to come up with a game, or with a challenge, or with stakes that could hold his interest. You know, that makes sense, but he never actually says that. Like, it almost feels like there's not even a page missing because it goes from one panel to the next. It feels like there's a panel missing or something. So, I like going with what you said, because, yeah, that would fit Games Master, it would fit the story. I just wish the dialogue made more sense. And then comes my favorite moment in this entire crossover. Because there's one new mutant still unaccounted for. That's Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair. And um, Richter calls her up to warn her that Fenris is still on the loose. And we see that on the other end of the line, Rain is on the phone grinning and telling Richter she'll be careful. As in the background, Strong Guy and Polaris handcuff Fenris and take them away. I love that there was this whole big fight, and, like, we don't even get to see it. Like, it's just, Fenris just got their asses kicked, and that's it, and that's wonderful. Yeah, that's really, really delightful. Cable, on the other hand, is less than delighted. Did they just hand the next generation over to, to you know, to Game Master? Firestar, maybe, looks at the bright side? Maybe what you've really done is offer up a challenge to Professor Xavier, to yourself, even to us. To make sure that we're there to help people like Paige, and make sure they aren't fooled by the wrong side before we get to them. And I love this, because let's think about what happened with Angelica herself. Emma Frost got to her before Xavier did, and her life kind of went to hell after that, and she doesn't want that to happen to any of these new mutants. What's amazing and ironic about this is that Emma Frost is actually going to be the person who steps into that role for Paige's class of mutants. Oh, I know. I love it. It's so multi-layered and presumably intentional. I'm sure they knew what was going on with Generation X by this point. I'm never sure that anyone knows what's going on with anything, Miles. Especially not in the mid-90s. Meanwhile, on a remote cabin, on a remote island, a guy we haven't seen before responds to Cable's agreement with Firestar, saying, very well, let the game begin. I guess that's supposed to be the real Game Master, but I thought we saw the real Game Master earlier, and he looked just like he did in the Mindscape. And anyway, nothing ever comes of this, which is unfortunate, because I kind of liked the idea of another big player competing for the hearts and minds of the mutant future, but uh, eh, what can you do? Would he, though, or would he just kidnap them and be like, do some stuff and I'll give you a prize? Maybe it would be that. I don't know. But that's actually basically it for the upstarts. After this, the Games Master has his new goal, and the upstarts all got their asses kicked and have basically quit, or in Fitzroy's case, have seemingly, but not really, been killed. So here's a question. Is Games Master maybe just out there through all of the next, you know, decades, just like running a quiet charter school somewhere? Oh god, he probably is, and it's finally going to come to fruition in like, you know, 2025 or something. We'll learn that his plot has finally matured and ripened, and that's going to be the next generation of X-Men stories. No, because all of his students would have gotten depowered. Oh, oh, that's, that's a good point, perhaps. Right? 
So that is the X-Force New Warriors crossover. That's Child's Play. And not a whole lot happens, but it's really fun seeing all the former New Mutants and seeing all the former Hellions who aren't, you know, slaughtered, hanging out and doing stuff. Like, it's just an enjoyable superhero story, even if nothing comes of it. I would have liked to have seen the two halves of it more directly linked and more involved and more interacting. What we've basically got are two parallel stories that eventually intersect briefly at the very, very end. But I think this would have been a lot more interesting if we'd gotten to see more dynamic play out between the two teams, especially since the subjects of the Young Hunt are specifically two groups of rival students. Yeah, and there was that old romance between Cannonball and Firestar very briefly back in the day. Right, there's so much you could do with the parallel of them having having two young teams who are, are trying to stop this. Yeah, although it's harder to do, though, just because the Hellions got damn near annihilated by Fitzroy. There are only a few Hellions left, so it wouldn't feel even remotely parallel. I mean, there are three. That's not too bad. That's fewer than the New Mutants, but... And I'm not talking about making them parallel now. I'm talking about parallels to what they were before, or at least symmetry with it. Yeah, yeah, that would have been fun as well. But I think even without that, even with it being basically just a big punch-up, it's a pretty good big punch-up. Well, child's play very much aside, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, How often do you read original single-issue comics with ads and letters to the editor? I'm curious about your favorite ads, if you have any. So, I haven't really read much of that since I was a kid back in the 90s, and part of that is that letters columns are rarer these days, Uh, although I do still always read the Squirrel Girl letters columns because they're invariably adorable, and uh, the Thor letters columns when they appear are pretty fun as well. But I do remember this one specific ad that kept showing up right around this era. It was an ad for an X-Men game that you played over the phone, like not a phone app, because that totally wasn't a thing back in the 90s. But like you would call a certain number and you would hear a story narrated and you would have the option to have Wolverine, Iceman, Cyclops or Banshee use their powers in different scenes by pressing different keys on your phone's keypad. And there was some kind of uh, big prize if you were able to complete this. We actually had some listeners talking about this online a while back. Uh, apparently you had to hit the phone keys at the exact right time or else you were screwed and would have to, you know, call back. And this was like a buck 75 to start and then 75 cents a minute, which if you were a kid back in the early to mid nineties is a ton of money. So I always really wanted to play it, but I always knew that I would get in a ton of trouble with my parents if I ever tried to. So, uh, it, it, it never happened. Um, also from older comics, I do remember all the full page ads about how if you sold the newspaper grit, you could earn all these amazing prizes that invariably would be damn near worthless next to the hours and hours and hours of work you put into this whole thing. See, I love that taken out of context because I don't remember seeing those ads. And so I'm just imagining ads saying sell grit. Yeah, you know, just fish it out between your couch cushions or something. Somebody's going to want it. We'll give you a bike. <laughs> I, I I thought through this and I, I do not have a favorite ad. I started reading these in quick enough succession that I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the ads, now I read mostly mostly digitally. And alas, modern ads just are not what they used to be. It's true. Honestly, I think the farther back you go, the more fun the ads are, because they're just bonkers back in the day. Although I guess that was normal for back then. Was it normal for back then? Were hypnosis kits and karate lessons normal back in the day? 
An additional anonymous listener, or possibly the same anonymous listener, asks on Tumblr, Recently, I've noticed a bunch of characters like Tarot of the Hellions, Pyro, Fabian Cortez, Sienna Blaze, and Trevor Fitzroy have been coming back to life with no real explanation for why they aren't dead anymore, and then fade back into limbo without really doing anything. What's your stance on this? Should all comic book resurrections be explained? And should a character be brought back from the dead if they're not actually going to be plot relevant afterwards? So, in response to your three questions, respectively, it's complicated, no, and sometimes. I'm recording right with you, and I already forgot which question it was which. Uh, Care to elaborate? All right, so I'm actually going to start with the second question, which is, should all comic book resurrections be explained? And the answer, I think, is no. Comic book resurrections, when they're story relevant, when significant that a character's coming to come back, should absolutely be explained. I think, ultimately, that slavish attention to continuity when it comes to minor character deaths isn't always a useful thing. Now, in the age of, of, of you know, wikias and the internet, there's much less excuse for not being aware of that stuff. But in general, I'm not inclined to nitpick it too badly. Like, I will for fun, but it's not something that pulls me out of the story at this point. I think in general, when it comes to a lot of minor continuity stuff in comics, I'll pretty much always defer to rule of cool. I will call out the inaccuracies and inconsistencies, but if there's a good story built around them, I'm okay with them being a little bit shaky. I don't know. I have to say that for me, when I do see minor characters brought back and then not really used, to me it just makes comics feel even more than they already do, like death doesn't matter. Like, Pyro died of the legacy virus, and it was kind of dramatic, and to just have him show up again to just shoot some fire for a second and then disappear, that's unfortunate, and... You know, Jay, you mentioned this is an age of wikis and the internet and continuity being easily available. I feel like making an effort really does add something. It really does make death feel like it's actually occasionally final. Well, what I what I was going to say was um, with with regards to should a character be brought back from the dead if they're not going to be plot res- relevant afterwards is that basically in general with superhero characters, you should use the ones you can build a good story around. Their relative relevance going forward, I have mixed feelings about. I think the best Resurrections, and there have been some really cool things pulled out of Resurrections. I will point to to Banshee's current state as one of the better side effects of kind of an offhand and pointless Resurrection. Which is the reason I think that I'm not willing to totally dismiss them, is that even, and often especially in poorly thought out stories and continuity errors, you frequently find the roots of much richer and more interesting stories. And while there are things that I can say if I were in charge, I wouldn't let that through, as a reader, it's hard not to see the potential in those in a line and in continuity where such small things have borne such interesting fruit over the years. Valid point. I I feel like I I just sort of stole your optimism role, and it's weird. (laughs) A nice reversal. Well, in any case, um, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today, fresh out of the hot tub, the mic goes to Sexy Shinobi Shaw. 
If I weren't so rich and handsome and powerful, I might almost be jealous of the new mutants and the Hellions. Spending those formative years with boys and girls their own age, why, I'm sure they learned a great deal about their bodies, their selves. Certainly no more than I was able to expertly master from my own extensive experience, of course. Why, by the time I was a grown-up, I knew all the different touches you can do on a person's parts. But Mars, tell me, at sleepovers, just how many bottles do the teenagers spin? And do their lips get tired kissing all those bottles? I'm just curious, of course. I had, and have, lips strong and dexterous enough to kiss even the most quickly spinning bottle. And Trent Seeley, did the teenagers you knew ever play Seven Minutes in Heaven at parties? And if so, did they have to be especially good to get into heaven? Now, when I was a teenager, I once spent 17 minutes in heaven. I met some angels. And we did the sex. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Rachel Summers and her triumphant mullet go back into the time stream, but don't worry, there's still plenty of family drama to go around. After all, Nightcrawler's still on the team. God, if someone ever shows up up at a convention as Wine Mom Domino, I will be so happy. Wine Mamano, that would be great. <laughs> or just like Domino with a wine glass looking an- looking annoyed. Right. Okay.